So if uh, you've got your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is where we'll be looking at this morning, chapter 6, and uh, particularly verses 14 through 28, 29, rather. Is anybody here wearing all black? If you are, you are the one that's dressed appropriate this morning because we're going to be, in a sense, attending a bit of a funeral and the funeral is not for me and none of you here this morning, but it is for the beloved John the Baptist. We're going to talk a little bit about him. But before we do that, I want to explain to you this morning why I'm wearing this blue goodness right here. This is a uh, Hagerstown Church hoodie, and I will, uh, you know, there's no shame in my game. I'm going to offer you a chance to get some church bling bling. So this is a, a model of our uh, church uh, hoodie that we put out two years ago, and so it's about time for us to, to get another one. Many of you well, were around when we sold these the first time, and you didn't get a chance to get it. Many of you did, and you're representing some of you even this morning. Um, but either way, some of you are saying, hey, and I've had complaints. They said, when, when do we get our hoodie? When do we get another chance at it? Hey, the time is now, and you only have two weeks and so write that down. There's only two weeks. If you want to sign up to get a hoodie, you can either sign up today or you can sign up next Sunday. And then after next Sunday, we're actually going to be placing the order. And our hope is, and our faith and belief is, that if we can get those orders placed, we'll be able to actually issue you a hoodie in preparation for you to don on Op Thanks. And so wouldn't that be great if we could all wear our warm Hagerstown Church hoodies? I will say this, uh, two things about that. One, the, the color that is going to be very similar to this, but the color that we're going to be using is gray uh, this year, so it'll go well with blue and, and, uh, and the rest of the color palette that we have as a church. But then also, um, you want to make sure that you get that in there, uh, and uh, you'll, you'll sign up as you come in the auditorium, as you, as you actually come in off the street, there's a table right there with a sign-up sheet. And so if you're an individual and you'd like to get a hoodie, just write your name down and uh, check off which size that you'd like. If you're a family and you want to get a couple, you just again, just one of you, write your name. You can put the last name of your family and then check off the ones that you want, and we'll, we'll make sure that we place an order. If you do happen to miss this order, there is a chance that we'll do a late order uh, towards the new year. And so if you miss it this week, that's... Uh, this, that, that'll be fine. You'll probably have another shot at it. But anyway, so uh, when you see people wearing this, uh, this kind of a hoodie here, just know that you had a chance, uh, and, it's, and it's, it's, the window is closing shortly. But anyway, let's get back into the text this morning. So Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be at. This morning, we're going to take a look at the life and uh, maybe even, I should say, the death of the greatest of the prophets of all time. According to the account given to us via Mark, we, we meet this man, John the Baptist, actually in chapter 1. I just want to say this real quick. John the Baptist is not uh, a Baptist by denomination. He's called John the Baptist or John the Baptizer because what, what did he do? Well, he was, that was one of the things that he did. He baptized people. He called Jew and Gentile alike to be baptized. And so just a fun fact, if you're thinking, hey, of all the denominations out there, we know that we're in the right one because John the Baptist was a Baptist. You might even be asking, is John the Baptist a Southern Baptist or is he an American Baptist? Well, he was really, he was neither. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, let's, 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 let's jump back in here again. Rain it back in, right? Uh, so we're first introduced to this guy, John, in chapter one. I want to read just a passage. So if you're in John, or Matthew, sorry, Mark chapter six, uh, stay there, but I just want to read some, some things to, to update you on the life of John the Baptist. Really, at the first verse, first couple sentences, we get a, a wonderful picture of, of what's happening in the life of John the Baptist. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, this is what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face. That messenger is 
John the Baptist. And what does it say, this, this prophecy in Isaiah? Who will prepare your way, the way of the Messiah? Verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Verse 4, it says that in fulfillment of that, John appeared. And what did he appear doing? Baptizing in the wilderness. And what, what else? Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It says all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with a camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, listen to this. He preached saying this, after me comes he who is mightier than I and the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So just in the first couple of verses of Mark chapter one, we get a, a, a pretty colorful picture painted for us about this man, John, and what the role of John would be as it relates to the Messiah. Two things I want to point out to you. One is this, that Jesus was baptized by John there in the Jordan. Jesus was baptized by John there in the Jordan. And the second thing I want you to see from this passage here is that John's arrest, when he is first arrested, happens after the time that Jesus baptized or was baptized by John. And that arrest actually marks the beginning, chronologically, of Jesus' public ministry. And so John's arrested, and at that time Jesus comes into to Galilee and begins to preach and and work his ministry. And so that's a little bit of the understanding. Just briefly, John is sent in prophecy, in fulfillment of prophecy, to prepare the way of the Messiah. He does that. And many come out from Jerusalem. They're baptized by him. They repent of their sins. But not only does that take place, but Jesus is also, also a part of that group and comes forward, and he also is baptized. And if you're interested in learning more about that, you can back up in our podcast and, and listen to a couple of those sermons that we, we, we work through this first chapter helping to us to see the, the, the understanding, a greater understanding of, of Jesus' baptism and even John's ministry. But right after Jesus is baptized, John is arrested. And so he's been in prison for some time. Now, I want to I warn you, we're about to read from the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, and you might think, well, uh, is this all chronological? Well, I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Mark is not always chronological. As a matter of fact, what Mark likes to do, as you know already, he likes to take the story and tell in a way that actually has a little bit of a punch to it. So he's not doing damage. He never intended to, to say that this is what happens chronologically, but he's telling us a story, and he'll, he'll, he'll start this one story, and then he'll pause, and he'll say, hey, let me tell you this other little story, and he'll insert it right in the middle. And he's doing that. He's lining these, things, these two things up to kind of give it a little more punch and to show you a little bit more meaning here. And, and this is kind of what's, what's taking place even this morning. And so John is, uh, is arrested, and Jesus is uh, beginning his ministry. And so then in Mark chapter 6, much, thing, much time has, has passed, and, and water has gone onto the bridge, so to speak, but we haven't heard anything else from this John the Baptist. And now we get to hear a little bit more about it. And so here's our actual reading for this morning, Mark chapter 6, picking up in verse 14. This is what it says. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Well, just from this sentence here alone, we know that King Herod heard of what? 
he had heard of Jesus. Remember last week we looked at this, this, this fact that Jesus was beginning to send out in a new way disciples. And so he paired them up and he sent them out two by two. And they went out to, to perform miracles and to preach a message of repentance, to preach the gospel. And uh, we're going to find out what takes place and what happens. But as they go out and as Jesus' ministry begins to, or continues to just be developed and understood and, and spread abroad, King Herod hears of it. Some said of Jesus, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. Jesus is Elijah. And others said, no, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Cat's kind of been let out of the bag here, Mark. You, you just, last time we heard of John, what, where was John at? Well, John was imprisoned. And now Mark, as he tells the story, he lets us know that, wait a minute, no, John is actually dead. He's been beheaded. Well, verse 17 gives us an explanation and moving forward of what had actually happened to John. And we all want to know that. What did happen to John? Well, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, which was his brother Philip's wife, because he, Herod, had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he had heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples, John's, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we've taken time out of our service this morning not to do you a favor in some sense, but to do ourselves one. To hear your word read aloud amongst the assembly of believers, of the saints. And we do that in hope and in anticipation that you'll speak to us through your word. So from Psalms 1 to Mark 1 and Mark 6 now and, and more as we go through our time, we pray that you would work in our midst the power of your word, the power of your spirit. And we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. I want you to be reminded that the gospel of Mark was first made available to a particular group of people. Do you remember who they were and where they lived? Does anybody remember? Particularly the location of the initial recipients of this book. They were living in Rome. Living in Rome, 
They were the initial audience. And Mark knew about them. He knew what they needed to hear. He needed, they knew, they, they, that they needed to, needed to hear the, the story of their Lord. Times were tough there in Rome in the first century, and the persecution of the early church was at fever pitch. Uh, they, they were there needing to be encouraged. There were some likely that were just were despondent because of the persecution, because of the murders, because of the families being arrested and destroyed and places burnt down. Others in that group there in Rome, they're confused. Is this really how the Christian life is supposed to look? Is this what we're supposed to be doing? To be living in fear, to be living in confusion? And so to these first century believers, Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, writes this account. And this particular passage that we're looking at, you need to be reminded of that it was given initially to us as well, but initially to this group there in Rome. And so helping to understand how they would have received it will help us to receive it as well and even better this morning. Really, as I looked at this text, we're not going to go through it necessarily word by word as we typically do. But I really want to, just for sake of time, I want to look at three principles or three truths from this text. We don't have a main idea this morning. We have three sub points, three big ideas or co-ideas. And what Mark wanted them to see, what the Spirit of God wanted them to see, and what I want us to see as well as I study this text are these three things. I'm going to give them to you right off the bat, and then we'll work our way through these three. The first is this, that tribulation abounds, but his love is greater. Tribulation abounds, but God's love is greater. We'll unpack that in just a moment. Here's the second one. The gospel is worth your life. The gospel is worth your life, but it is also worth your death. These are some heavy, painful statements to make. Here's the third one. A righteous life may be hated. It can be hated, but it cannot be refuted. A righteous life can be hated, but it cannot be refuted. Although we are not living in first century Rome, we're not experiencing the persecution that the early church did in those days, at the same time, I believe that these truths, that this passage has been given to us, Hagerstown Church, this morning for our betterment, for our encouragement, for our edification. And so let's look with open hearts and minds to this text. The first point I want to unpack for us this morning I've given just a moment ago is this tribulation abounds but his love is greater here we read the tragic story of a man who preached the repentance message he gave his life to the preparation of the way of Jesus Christ as we read just a moment ago God prepared him and sent him to go and preach this message and he went and he did that He prepared the way of the Lord, and he leaves this world, though, not with worldly honor, not even with some type of a send-off from the church, not even able to see the, the fruition of what he had been called to proclaim, but like a scene out of a Quentin Tarantino movie, suddenly and terribly, his head is removed from his shoulders. We're in this beautiful story of Jesus here at the beginning of chapter 6, sending out 12 disciples, and you're like, man, that's just a great, that's a great Sunday school story, isn't it? 
And Mark's like, yeah, it's great. They went out. They went out and they were preaching and sharing the gospel and people were repenting and they were doing miracles and it was great. And then John dies in prison. Suddenly, terribly, tribulation abounds. John was the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. He gave his entire life to serving God by preparing the way for Jesus. And now at the end of his life, he, he faces imprisonment, abuse, and finally execution quickly. And in an odd way, the, the Roman listeners would not like us be, be concerned about this. But I think as they hear the story of John the Baptist, I think that they, in an odd way, would actually find a little bit of comfort. Why? Because they were experiencing this kind of stuff as well. They were experiencing tribulation. They were experiencing persecution. They were losing loved ones. People who preached and led were, were being executed and burned at the stake and used as torches along the pathway of the garden. While we as Western Christians don't face much of this type of treatment, we have read about it. And so we're concerned when we read this. This is a possibility. And the early church was comforted that this is not a sign. Persecution is not a sign that God's wrath is against us. But in some way, it's a comfort that this is how it's been from the beginning. In a few months, we'll, we'll work our way and come to the the Passion Week. We'll see Jesus, our Lord and Savior, facing an execution as well. Tribulation and persecution at a level that none of us could even imagine. And we'll be comforted in that moment to know that along with the Roman listeners of the first century, that this is the way that it will be. This is what Jesus even prophesied. This is what happens to Christians. So throughout church history, Christians have faced tribulation of various sorts. They faced persecution. Even now, we face some threats, some things that we should in some way be fearful of or be concerned about. And we ask this question, how are we to respond to tribulation that is abounding? How are we to, to face that? What are we to think about that? What do we say to that? That question has already been asked. It's a biblical thought. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's not going to be on the screen. You can either listen or, or, or flip there quickly. But Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31, the question is asked, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Look, listen to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. As you read that, maybe there's a stirring in your heart. Maybe there's a confusion. You see, because there's this false notion that when you become Christian, when you became a Christian, that you get your best life now. That suddenly when you become a Christian, you're impervious now to pain and loss and failure by the world's standards. Where did we ever get that idea? Where did we ever get this idea 
that we wouldn't face what's listed in Romans 8.35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or even the sword. It did not come from the scriptures. It's false. Everybody faces pain. Everybody in this world, you, you need to know this, one of the reasons why we know that that is not a true statement is that literally everybody goes through pain. Everybody loses. Everybody hurts. In this life, regardless of who you are and what you believe, you are going to suffer. It's part of what it is to be human in a sense. It doesn't matter whether you're a Buddhist, an an atheist, a Muslim, or a Christian. We all have this in common, that we will suffer on some level, in varying degrees. We'll all burn the roof of our mouth if we eat hot pizza, right? If we don't have the patience. That happens to all of us, regardless of who we are. And you say, well, that's, uh, that's funny. Well, something not so funny is stubbing our toes, you know, at night. We all will do that. We'll all roll our ankles. We'll all lose the ones that we love. We'll all face that. Whether it be your children or your grandparents or your parents, you will face pain. You'll face loss. You'll face tribulation. You'll face distress. And so in some way, it's totally normal that all of us, regardless of what we believe, will face in this life those things. And so for somebody to say that you can have because you're a Christian, your best life now, and all these painful things can, can go away, and you can rise above, it's just not true, practically speaking. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. And by the way, do you know God never faces that? You know, God never faces tribulation, not in the way that we do. Why? God's self-sufficient. God stands on his own. He's in, he literally is impervious to pain and loss in the sense that we are not. He doesn't need us, and yet we need him. God is self-sufficient, and we are not. So each and every one of us, as we face death, as we face pain and loss, we ask the question, what should we do? What are we to do? Romans 8 goes on. It says in verse 37, no, in all of these things, in all of those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He goes on to say, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor death nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so take heart. It seems unfathomable that all of the things listed in, 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 in chapter uh, 8 of Romans could be diminished in a way that they are. Like all the things that we fear most, Paul's like, hey, you, none of those things can separate us from the love of God. None of them. He, he really just kind of makes, in a sense, light of them. Not to say that, it's not, that pain doesn't hurt, that loss isn't a terrible thing, but he's saying, and there's something so much greater than those things. And you say, well, what should, what should I do then? What does this mean? Uh, should I not worry about separation from the love of God? Why is that the thing? This person has a sword. In the face of tribulation, I I should be excited about just not being separated from God and the love of God? Well, here's what Paul is helping us to see, that it's a matter of trust, of faith, that God's love for his children is greater than anything that we face in this life. 
And that in some way, because of God's love in our lives, manifests that he will work out these things, these dangerous, these tough situations, even loss, tribulation generally. He'll work these things out in our lives for his glory and for our good. And we need to trust that. God asked Abraham to believe that God would give him a son. He said, believe this. And what did Abraham do? Well, he did, even though he was old. And Sarah, his wife, was barren, unable to have children. How could this be possible? You ask the question, how can God really love us when we face trials and and tribulation? How can it be just as a cheap pleasure in this world is fleeting, so is the pain of this life? It doesn't matter whether you are winning by the world's standards or losing. This life is passing quickly. Both find their value determined by the surpassing worth of Christ. And so whether you are winning by the world's standards, whether you are escaping tribulation, the value of that is determined by Christ alone and the blessing that he's bestowing on you. And whether you're by the world's standards losing and suffering, that too, its value is determined by the value of Christ and the promise that he gives us that in the face of all this, he loves us and he's working these things out for our good. So for the Christian, the things that are being prepared for us cannot even be fathomed. You say, well, you don't know what I'm going through. You're right, I don't. And you don't know what you, what you have before you. And though tribulation is real in this time and pain is real, the glory that he has prepared for the Christian is even more real. John chapter 16, Jesus is speaking with his disciples. He's heading to the cross. You say, well, can Jesus really identify with me? Does he really know what it's like? Well, yes, he does. As he walks to that, that, that cross, in a sense, in John chapter 16, having left the upper room, the night he's betrayed, he's speaking to his disciples and he says, behold, listen guys, the hour is coming. Indeed, it, it has come. You'll be scattered, each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. He goes on to say, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, listen, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus, our Lord, do you realize that we call him Lord, not just because he is Yahweh, but we also call him Lord because he's our master. Our master, the one whom we follow, he said, listen, you will have tribulation, but take heart, have hope, I have overcome the world. And so what do we do? What do we hang on to? Do we hang on to the hope that we may possibly escape tribulation? Is that what we have been left with as Christians? As we face trials in this life, associated with our faith in God, or just, just associated with life itself? What is our hope? The possibility of escaping tribulation? That we may avoid pain? Is that what we should hope in? That we would know, not know loss? That we would be avoiding it? Should, we be, should our hope be that persecution could be evaded, possibly, if, if, if the U.S. doesn't erode as fast as it appears to be 
Maybe we'll escape persecution. Is that our hope? Is our hope that the next president will be your candidate? Is that what our hope is? Will our hope be that we will not have to attend the, the, the funeral of a loved one? Will it be that maybe we'll make it out alive ourselves? This is not the hope of a Christian. No, we're not to hope for these things in and of themselves. No, as Christians, we hold on to this, that Jesus' love for us is greater than anything we will ever face, and that as we face it, Jesus is with us. That's the hope that we have. Jesus says, listen, tribulation is coming. He says, don't worry, take heart, have faith. I have overcome. And because I love you, Jesus says to the Christian, you too overcome. You too will overcome. So whether that tribulation that you face that is before you, and we don't know what is before you. You don't know, but God does. As you face that, whether it's associated with just life in general or your faith in God, either way, he has overcome. And because he loves us, we overcome with him. And so, suffering increases, in part because we all face it, and in part because of our faith. But God's love is more. God's love is greater. And so we look at the life of John the Baptist and we say, how can this end like this? This faithful man of God, how could it end like this? Tribulation is part of life. It's part of being a Christian. But God's love is greater. So that's the first idea that I wanted to unpack for you that just surfaces from this text. Here we are at a funeral. We're reminded, oh yeah, by the way, I forgot to tell you, John, John's dead. What? Is the show over? Should we give up? John's gone. He's the forerunner. No. What does Jesus do? He sends the disciples out. He sends the disciples out. So that's the first one. Another point that just surfaces for me from this text is this associated with this idea that John lost his life. It's this, that the gospel is worth your life. The gospel is worth your life, but it is also worth your death. When you hear that, what do you think? The gospel is worth your life, but it is also worth your death. Some of us are tempted to write John off as this weird guy, right? And in all fairness, he's weird, right? But, but John was a man that knew his life was not his own. He was a man that knew his life was not his own. And that alone, when you find that in a man, he's weird. When you find that in a woman, when you find that particular thing, when they say, my life is not my own, it's weird. They're walking to the beat of a different drum. They're going upstream. They say, no, my life is not mine, it's Christ's. I'm in Christ. And he lives and works through me. Everything that I own, everything that I, that, I, that, that, that I possess, my faculties, my possessions, everything belongs to Christ. And yeah, when people look like that, when they do that, they are weird. He was willing to give his entire life in such a way that would bring maximum glory to God. And so when everyone else is wearing designer clothes, he's wearing camel skins, which is not designer skins, right? It's not designer clothes, right? 
When everyone else is eating normal food, he's eating honey-coated locusts, right? He's willing to live in the wilderness away from the comfortable life in order to serve his master because that's where his master had called him to. He, He knew that it was God who had determined what he was to do. He was willing to do that. He was, in a sense, a real sense, a living sacrifice. And so his entire life, he, he was in the will of God, doing what God would have him to do. And just that part alone, the gospel is worth your life. Some of you are struggling with that. Maybe you're struggling to actually grasp that concept and really to say, like, what does that look like in my life? Is the gospel really worth my life? Does God really determine what it is that I'm to do and what it is I'm not to do? Like before we even get to this death part, is it really worth that? Doesn't God just ask for like 10% of my life, like 10% of my money, 10% of my family, of my time? Like what, isn't it just a part of that? And John says, no, no I've given him everything. He determines the value of, of, of everything I have. And I've put all, all of my possessions, all of my being, I've, I've pushed forward towards this message of the gospel that he has redeemed me and he has sent me out to share the gospel with others. You say, I don't know if that's true. You, maybe you haven't settled that in your life. Listen, if you're a Christian, your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price and now you are to glorify God with everything that is you. Because everything that is you, if you're a Christian, belongs to him. And so it's not this or that. It's just not like this part of your life you give to God. Sunday mornings we give to God. I want to make you uncomfortable because you should be. That's unbiblical. Every ounce of us is God's. We don't just give him portions of who we are. We don't just give him time blocks of our week. We give him everything. John knew that his life was not his own and he was okay with, with being phased out even for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. And so he gave his life as a living sacrifice. But then he also said, I'm, I'm even willing to die. I'm even willing to be like, you know, decreased for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the Messiah. This is what John says. Now, to, uh, this is what it says. Now, now, discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan. But he's, he's recalling the disciples. You remember that time you baptized that guy that said he was the Messiah and you said he was the Messiah? Remember him? You bore witness saying, look. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And the one who has the, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's, bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Jesus asked about by the disciples of John to John, what about this guy? Tell us about him. And Jesus says, or John says to them, hey, I'm not the bridegroom. No, no, no. I'm just facilitating a conversation. I'm just making sure this wedding goes off. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a friend. 
And now that he's come onto the scene, John says, Jesus, the bridegroom, he must increase and I must decrease. Quite literally, we see this happening. John is center stage. He opens the book of the gospel of Mark up. He's the the focus. Then quickly, he's ushered off the scene. He's put into prison. And then he's mentioned in chapter 6 that he, oh yeah, by the way, he's dead. And here's how he died. Then he's only mentioned two more times in the gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is there with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asks his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? What's the talk around town? And John comes up. He's not the focus of the conversation. Jesus is the focus of the conversation. But some say, well, the disciples say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And we know how it goes, and Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? Right? The point is, John is mentioned in passing. Oh, some people think, Jesus, that you're John the Baptist reincarnate. He's mentioned in passing. He's mentioned again in Mark chapter 11. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He's debating with them, and he asks the question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Again, just in passing, he asks the Pharisees. They know that this is a trick question. If they say that it wasn't from heaven, that they'll, they'll, they'll basically lose legitimacy because the people hailed that John was a prophet. If they say that it was, then they'll be like, well, hey, John affirmed Jesus, right? So they didn't know what to do. Jesus is, oh, he's, 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 in, he's intelligent here. He's wily. He, he pins them down with this question. But really, even then, John is mentioned, but it's not any, anything great about him. He's mentioned two more times after his death is mentioned. And neither one, I mean, he literally has decreased. He's gone away. Even physically, he's dead. And you, see, you see, John knew that if he spoke up about the sinful relationship between Herod and Herodias, his sister-in-law, that it would end poorly for him. He was barking up a dangerous tree, but he did it anyway. He spoke the truth anyway. He, did, he fulfilled the role that he was supposed to fulfill regardless of what the future held. And the way that John died really is just the beginning. Christ would die at the hands of those who hated the truth as well. The next would be Stephen. Then James, the brother of John, and millions in that line have died since for their faith, for standing on the truth, all believing that the message of the gospel, that the message of truth was worth living for, and it was also worth dying for. That's one of the great apologetics of our faith, that so many of the disciples of Jesus Christ were killed for their faith and choosing as an apologetic to prove like look they they believed it so much they were willing to lay their life down for it it wasn't just some hoax some kind of a prank they all believed this message that the gospel was worth living for and it was even worth dying for so maybe you're thinking this morning i I, i'm not sure that i agree with you that the gospel is worth my life and death well let me ask you this what is your life and death worth? What are you willing to live and die for? Is there anything? What is your life worth? Is it worth a Netflix subscription? Are you willing to live your life even up to the point of death to be entertained? Is it worth a fantastic career? 
You live your entire life in pursuit of success. Is that really worth your life and death? At the end of your life, will you say, it was worth it all? If this is what you gain, if you lose everything but you gain a fantastic career, then is that, will you be satisfied? Is your life worth all the money in the world? That you would gain, as Jesus says, the whole world and suffer loss of soul. What is there value in that? I would wager this, that at the end of your life, when you face the deep, cold waters of death, that you will not long for more money, for more fame, or for more pleasure, but you will long for meaning. You will long to know that what you lived for, and even now what you die for, can sustain the weight of your life and the value of your life. You'll want to know that the time that you spent chasing this or that was worth it, and you'll wish that you had more time to find more meaning and more value. That's not true of John. That's not true of John. Let me ask you this. If you, like John, just suddenly were to die, and death came upon him quite suddenly, in some sense comfortable there in his cell, and then not. Executioner there, sent from Herod's palace, there at the door. What do you think John had left to do? Think about that. And then put yourself in that situation. Let's say you came face to face with this idea that it was over, that your life had come to an end, and now death is one breath away. What will you need to do? Will you need to make a phone call? Will you need to delete something? Will you need to apologize? Will you, just, will you beg for just five more minutes? Will you, will you beg for just a few more hours? Or will you say, my time is up. I finished the course, I've run the race, and henceforth what's set before me is the thing that God has prepared for me. What will you say? Listen, you're, you're going to die, each and every one of us. And we pray that it will be long into the future, and yet it's a present reality. And we ask these types of questions. What will we be remembered for? Many are afraid to die. Others are afraid they'll be forgotten. One of my greatest fears is that I will be remembered but for the wrong thing. Listen, the gospel is worth your life. And it is even up to the point of being worth your death. We're attending the funeral this morning in a sense of a man that gave his life for the sake of the gospel. And he said, it was worth my life to live, to preach the gospel, and then to die, and then to seemingly be forgotten. That, that idea, that statement is attributed to Count Zinzendorf in the 18th century. He was a bishop of the Moravian church and he said statements like that. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. He would say that to his missionaries encouraging them to follow God's call and to enter the mission field with no thought of obtaining honor for themselves. And he's saying you must be satisfied with preaching Christ, dying and being forgotten. This morning we could list out, we could spend hours, quite literally, I put this in my manuscript and then I deleted it. A list of about 50 to 60 famous Christians from the first century to present day. And I wanted to read that to you, but I thought it would actually take away from the point. The point is this. We know of many, some of you have studied the, the history of the church and you know how many people have lived and died and have been remembered, but how many more stand behind them that have been forgotten? Was their life worthless that they preached the gospel and that they died and now presently are forgotten by 
Their posterity? No. 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 They were satisfied with preaching Christ, dying and being forgotten. Remember that word preaching, we think about preaching, it just simply means to proclaim. Are you, are you satisfied with proclaiming Christ, the one who has redeemed you from the hand of the enemy? Put your feet on a solid rock. Are you satisfied with preaching Christ, dying and being forgotten? This flies in the face of modern Christianity. Christian, do you believe that, that your life is worth that? Step a little closer to a dangerous point for me. Parents, do you believe that about your children? That their lives, the entirety of it, is worth the gospel? Or do you read passages like this about John and you say, God, please, don't let this be true of me. Don't let this be true of my own children. And in some sense, yes, we would say, well, God, spare our children. Even as Christ said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, let your will be done and not ours. Why? Because you know better than we. And you know how to spend our lives in a way that is most glorifying to you and joyful for us. And so parents, look to your children and teach them that their life is not their own. And it is designed to in their life or in their death to be poured out as a drink offering to Christ. Young couple, do you believe that? As you prepare to start a family or as you do, that your life, that your marriage is about proclaiming Christ in various ways, through tribulation, distress, failure, and success, through pain and through joy, and then to die and Christ not be forgotten while you are. Are you prepared for that? It's a reality. It's a reality. This is what the scriptures teach. We see it in the life of John. And we mourn the death of John. But if you'll notice, you can skip ahead. John's, John's forgotten. John's life is, in a sense, lost. And what happens? Twelve more take his place. One goes down and twelve step forward. Why? Because they all agree. They all see that their lives are worth this message. They're worth it. Do you believe that? The third principle that I see coming up from this text is that a righteous life can be hated but it cannot be refuted. A righteous life may be hated, but it cannot be refuted. Herodias, the wife of Philip, she hated John for the truth that he spoke. And she just wanted him to be silent. She wanted to shut him up. She, she, she wanted to take his head. She wanted to take his life. But even when she did that, even when she was successful in executing her hatred against this man, she was unable to silence his voice. Even this morning, we have recalled the very words of John the Baptist, that prophet in the wilderness. And we've been encouraged and instructed by it. And so Herodias wanted to shut him up. But she was unable. So a righteous life may be hated. The righteous life of John was odious to many. And to some... It was intriguing. Herod, he loved to hear John preach. 
He even feared John because John had a righteous life. There was a light that was exuding from John and, Je- and, and Herod saw it. Look at verse 20. It says at the end of that verse, when he heard, Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed and yet he gladly heard him. And so one hears the message of John. One sees the light, the righteousness of John and she hates him. She wants to shut him up. And another doesn't necessarily receive it but is intrigued, perplexed, and actually enjoys hearing it. And so there's a truth here that some will listen, many will hate, but none can truly silence. John tried to silence, or Herod tried to silence John by putting him in prison. Didn't work. Herodias said, let me finish the job that you started. And she cut off his head. And yet she still was not able to silence him. I think of this godly woman by the name of Perpetua. She lived at the the turn of the century there in the third. She was a godly lady who died in Carthage. She may not be seen today, but in her martyrdom, she still speaks. Even though her bones are scattered and picked through by the lions, her light still shines this morning. And she among millions who were hated and yet could not be silenced. I think of John chapter one. It says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Speaking of Jesus, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We see this picture of the light of Christ shining into darkness and darkness hating, running, trying to to trample out, trying to shut down, trying to, to stifle the light that's shining, but it is unable to do so. And that light that Jesus, the word of God, shines into creation, that shines across the face of the earth, was also shining through John, and some hated it, and some tried to overcome it. Some tried to shut it down and yet they were unable to. And so this that was true of Jesus, that was true of Perpetua is also true of John that though his mouth was stopped, his voice is still heard. The righteousness that is created in us by the Holy Spirit is as intense as a light shining brighter and brighter as it grows in our sanctification and people notice it. People notice it. There's a light in you, Christian, that shines through cubicles. It shines through walls on streets. Your neighbors see it. Your coworkers see it. Your boss sees it if it's there. That light of righteousness shining out, people begin to notice. And it might be hated, but it cannot be refuted. It cannot be overcome. You look at the life of Jesus, even now. The, the, the most righteous person that ever lived People have tried to attack his character for years upon years upon years. They've tried to attack his message and it's impossible. They've tried to overcome it. They've tried to, to stop it. They've tried to put a blanket over it, to put a basket over it, if you will. And it's been impossible. And the same is true in your life. As the righteousness of Christ working in your life shines out, it cannot be overcome. Jesus speaking Matthew chapter 6, what does he say? 
verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. A righteous life may be hated, but it cannot be refuted. Our passage this morning is nestled between Jesus sending his disciples and hearing their reports. Next week, we'll look at that. We'll look at Jesus hearing the reports of his disciples. Why does, why does Mark insert this story here? Why does he tell this here? Why? Jesus is sending out his disciples and he's about to tell them of the reports that come back. It just makes sense that they be next to each other. And yet Mark inserts something different in the middle of that. He makes that sandwich again. And that middle piece is the death of John. And here's what Mark wants us to see. The same as he wanted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same that he, that he wanted them to see there in Rome in the first century. A tribulation abounds, but God's love is greater. And yeah, it's sad. John's gone. And he faced pain, and you do too, and you faced persecution even. But listen, his love is greater. The story doesn't end there. The story does not end with the death of John. His love is greater. Mark wants us to see the gospel is worth your life, but it's also worth your death. It's worth all of you. And he wants the church to see that no matter what they face, that this is a worthy way to live your life. This is a worthy cause. He wants us to be reminded. He wants those cowering Christians there in Rome to be bold as lions. Why? Because a righteous life may be hated, but it cannot be refuted. It cannot be overcome. And so church, be encouraged by these truths as we read of the life and death of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we have gathered around your word this morning so that we can be encouraged by it, that we can be corrected by it. Father, we pray that you would help us to see as we meditate on this the truths of what you would have us to see. Father, the areas in our life where we need to, to draw in, in line and in accordance and concurrence with your word, would you allow us to do that this morning? Father, where we have held back from you, would you bring us to the place of true sacrifice as we consider our own lives? Father, where we've been afraid, would you give us a boldness? A boldness that says, in life or in death, whatever may come, that you determine both what's ahead and our own value. Father, may we rest in these truths. May your church be helped as a result of this time. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.